You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you have a Bible, please turn to Colossians chapter f- uh, 1, verse 15. Colossians 1. What I will be going through in today's sermon uh, may bring up a lot of questions. It might even, uh, you might not even really get all of it. This is my, one of my favorite times of the year is where we, we stop the normal flow of the series that we're in and we focus on the identity of Jesus leading into Easter Sunday. And that's what we'll be doing today. Now, normally I'm in the narratives. We've been in the narratives for quite some time since the church started Mark and I'll, normally we'll turn to John or or one of the gospel narratives and, and share a story of, of Jesus. But since we're in the letters, we're in 1 Corinthians, I thought it would be good to talk about Christ from the letters. And what you, what you get in Christ from the letters uh, uh, written to the church is now Christ not only was humbled, but he was crucified, um, resurrected, and exalted. And so you get a, a large picture of the exalted Christ in the letters. And so what I want to do today is to go through that. Now, because of what we'll be discussing today, there might be a lot of questions, like I said, and you might not even understand a lot of what I'm saying. Because of that, I want to invite you to join a community group this week where we'll be practicing Lecto Divina, meaning we'll be going through the passage, sitting with the text, praying through it as a group, and discussing it. Just reading it, meditating on it, pausing, praying, um, discussing it. Or if you have any questions and you would like to ask me, I'll be right up front uh, with other leaders who would love to hear your questions after service. Now, Colossians 1. Sometimes uh, poetry is the only way to express deep truth. Truth like love or meaning, sometimes a truth like hurt or pain. This is why songs and poems and story can move beyond mere information all the way into feeling, still being factual, all the same. This is what good poetry does. This is what a good song does. When expressing Christ's identity, it's only poetry that can express such deep truth. It's poetry that goes beyond mere information to something deeper. So this is what Paul uses in Colossians 1. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is a poem. Some scholars even believe that what we're about to read was part of an ancient hymn that the early church sang proclaiming the deity, excellence, supremacy, and beauty of Jesus Christ. Let's read it and I'll pray. Verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That is a beautifully rich passage of Scripture. Let's pray as we get into it. 
God, I thank you for this time, this moment in history where you've brought people together and we're sitting underneath this very heavy and weighty passage of Scripture. And I ask, God, that you would, that you would reveal yourself to us through it, that you would show yourself to be who you are, that the identity of Jesus would come piercing through these words, these Scriptures. They would teach us. They would answer questions that we might have had for years, that they would, they would in, a ver- in a moment... Um, your, your nearness, your presence in this room, in this church, in this place would answer a lifetime of doubt, that you would move us beyond mere belief into trust in you, and that we would see you as the glorious, supreme, beautiful Christ that you are. I pray, God, that, that you would, um, I think we pray together that you would uh, anoint me. I need your, your help in, in dealing with such heavy passages as this. And uh, I can't do your job, Holy Spirit, but help me do mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Jesus is God. Jesus made the world. Jesus made you. Jesus was born from the womb of a teenage virgin. Jesus was homeless. Jesus was executed. This is what the Christian faith proclaims. And how can these things be true? All of these things that we see before us, how can all of these things be true? And what Paul does in Colossians, he sums all of them up. How can they be true if Christ the God is Christ the God who made the world? And if Christ is the God who made the world, how can he be the Christ who died for the world? How can Christ die? How can God die? One writer once penned, how could claims of this magnitude, in in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, what we just read, how could claims of this magnitude be made about a man who died little more than 30 years ago and who was remembered as a personal friend by men and women still living when he, when the letter was written? I think that's a very good thought. At the time of this writing, Paul writing this letter, and it being circulated around the Mediterranean, Jesus was alive just about 30 years prior. How could such things be proclaimed about Jesus around people who were still alive who knew Jesus? That he was, that, that he was a man, that this man, Jesus, was the image of the invisible God. I mean, how can such things be said about Someone they knew 30 years ago, yeah, he was the image of the invisible God. He created everything in the universe. He holds everything together. He is the head of the church, and he is the head of the world, and so that in everything, he might have supremacy. That seems absurd to say that about a man. But they weren't saying that, and Paul wasn't saying that about a man. They were saying about that, that about Christ, Christ the Lord. See, I believe it's easier for us to accept that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross for the world's redemption than to believe that he was the God who made the world. I don't even think we have language for that sometimes. As we get around, when we talk about Jesus, we talk about him in his humility, and we'll get there. We'll get there next week in Philippians 2. We talk about him in his humility, that Jesus was a, a, a man, and he, and he healed people, and he touched people, and he did all these great things, and he died for us on the cross. And, and that's, that's, that seems easy to say, but that, to say that Jesus was God, that he was never created, that he always existed, that he is supreme, 
that in all things he might be, he might have supremacy over heaven and earth and every single thing created. When we talk about Jesus dying on the cross for our redemption, we're like, okay, I get that. But when we talk about Jesus as creator God, who was not created, who always was and is worthy of everyone's worship, we're like, what? That sounds insane. But this is what this passage is saying, and it actually breaks up into three easy headings that are wonderful proclamations of who Christ is. And this is how we'll look at our text this morning. Christ the creator, Christ the sustainer, and Christ the redeemer. Christ the creator in verse 15 and 16, Christ the sustainer, verse 17 and 18, Christ the redeemer, verses 19 and 20. It's a preacher's dream. Okay. Christ the creator. I, I, first, I think we have to deal with this verse here because I think this sentence is pretty culturally bound. It might have a lot of you guys thinking, what is this saying? Look at this sentence here in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Here's some questions that might come to mind. How can Jesus be an image of something invisible? How can he be an image of something that's invisible? The other question you might have is, how can Jesus be firstborn yet the creator of everything? How can he be firstborn yet be the creator of everything? See, this verse here is where many offshoots of Christianity form, saying that Jesus may have been divine, but he was not God, or he was a God, lowercase, or God-like, but he was not God. So let's deal with this sentence first before we move on. The image, uh, the word uh, image there in he is the image of the invisible God is the word icon in Greek. It's where we get our word icon. It means image or likeness or icon. Images are usually actually of something invisible. Images are usually of something invisible. Uh, Think of the Statue of Liberty. Here's a picture of the Statue of Liberty and all of her glory. Liberty is invisible. But the Statue of Liberty represents liberty. It's the icon of liberty. Imagine if you were taking a boat over from a country that was experiencing, your country that was experiencing genocide and disease and oppression, and a group of you that was left of your village was taken out, put on a boat, and made your way across the Atlantic Ocean to America. And after a month or so or weeks or whatever, however long it takes you to go across the Atlantic to make your way into America, you pull right into Liberty Island, and there you see this statue, this icon, the Statue of Liberty, The clouds part. The beauty of this thing is in in the sky. You've only heard of it up to this point, but now you see it and you know exactly what it means. It means your liberty. You would almost be tempted to worship it because this icon represents liberty. What Paul says that Jesus is the exact image of the Father. This is what Paul is saying here. Jesus, being the image of God, was a visible, exact representation of God, illuminating God's very essence. The author of Hebrews says the same thing. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, this is how Hebrews opens. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Same thing that Paul is saying in Colossians. Verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, Jesus himself actually even said this. 
just in case you think people were just misunderstanding who Jesus was, he himself said this. John chapter 15. He says this, If you really knew me, you will know my Father as well. Jesus says, From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You know the Father and you've seen the Father. And then Philip, one of the disciples, says, Oh, Lord, show us the Father. We would love to see the Father. And that will be enough for us. That's it. We could die happy if we just see the Father. And Jesus said this, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus goes on to say, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The reason why Jewish authorities wanted to kill and murder Jesus wasn't because his teachings were radical, but he was in fact claiming to be one with God, making himself God. You can't say that, Jesus. You are a rabbi. Stop there. You're a teacher. Stop there. If he was a teacher, he would have went down as a teacher. He would have been a great teacher. He would have went down the history books as a wonderful teacher, but he didn't go down that way. He went down as a blasphemer. He went down as someone who says, you think you're God. You think you're equal with God. Therefore, we're going to destroy you. We're going to end your life. See, this is who God, Christ is how we see who God is. In Christ's humanity, the invisible attributes and characteristics of God are made visible. The power of God is made visible by Jesus' miracles. The wisdom of God is made visible by Jesus' teachings. The compassion of God is made visible by Jesus' healings. The love of God is made visible by Jesus' substitutionary death. Jesus makes God known. That's what the first part of the sentence says. The second part is also tricky. It says this, He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, Firstborn. This is where um, a lot of debate springs from. Well, he's born. He was created. If Jesus was firstborn, the question is, was Jesus created? If Jesus was created, he couldn't be God. He could be like a God or a little, like a little God or godly or divine, but he cannot be God. So what does the word mean? We have to keep in mind here, like I said, this sentence is pretty culturally bound, we have to keep in mind the law of primogeniture, which was a huge cultural right in the ancient world. And this is what the law of primogeniture basically says. The law of primogeniture basically meant the firstborn, I use quotes there if you've seen, the firstborn had all the rights denoting status. The word means status. The firstborn gets all the rights. And what do you see happen time after time as you're reading the Old Testament? The firstborn doesn't necessarily mean the firstborn. This happens with David, King David. Um, this happens with, uh, with um, Isaac and Ishmael. There are examples in the Bible where the firstborn does not have to do with physicality. A good example would be King David, though he was the youngest of his brothers. He was actually called the firstborn, Psalm eighty nine twenty seven, And I will appoint him, King David, to be my firstborn the most exalted of the kings of the earth. King David was the firstborn, though he wasn't the firstborn, meaning he has all the rights, he has all the privileges, he has all the power. Now, a common objection here is this. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, meaning 
he was the firstborn of all created things, or he was the first created being. This is what people say. All things were created. Out of all the things that were created, he was the first that was created. So Jesus was created first and everything was created after him. There's a problem with this objection. Here's the problem. It's wrong because of verse 16. If you keep reading, and it's always important to keep reading in your Bible. Don't just stop and go, ha, huh, I found out, done. Like, well, the next verse says, the, it explains it. Verse 16 says this, For by him all things were created, which separates him from created things. See, there's a perfectly good word in the Greek for first created. Paul, if he wanted to use first created, he would have used the Greek word for first created. He didn't use that term. He used the term for firstborn, meaning rights. He also says that he was the firstborn of the dead. Is he the first one to raise from the dead? You're like, well, no, because I thought he raised Lazarus from the dead before he was raised from the dead. Exactly. He is the firstborn to rise from the dead and not die ever again. He is the first one to come, and he's the one with all the rights and all the power over death. That's why he's firstborn of the dead. Here's the point. Some of your Bible translations in verse 15 say that Jesus is firstborn of all creation. Of all creation does not mean part of creation. Jesus was not part of creation. It actually is better translated as it says in NIV, and we just read, he is firstborn over creation. Here's an example of that, if that seems hard to wrap your mind around. Our president, President Obama, is the commander of the armed forces, but he was never part of the armed forces. It means that he is commander over the armed forces. When it says that Jesus is firstborn of all creation, it means that Jesus is the firstborn over creation. The significance is that he's sovereign over all creation. So let's look at this verse again, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus makes God known. He's the firstborn. He has right as a ruler over all creation. But then it even goes farther in verse 16. For in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been made or created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator God. Everything that had a beginning had a beginning through him. Therefore, he did not have a beginning. Everything that was created was created through him. Therefore, he was not created. Every part of the created cosmos, visible and invisible, and what's amazing about it saying visible and invisible is that our scientists and physicists are finding out that most of our universe is invisible. Most of our universe on the smallest level and the largest level is invisible. Every part of the created cosmos, visible and invisible, was created in Christ, by Christ, and for Christ. One commentator writes, Christ is the location. I love that. He's the location from whom all things came into being. In him, everything was made. This is what Paul is saying. And in whom all creation is contained. It's created in him, and it all is all in him right now. It's all created through him, and everything is held together in Christ right now. It's all in him. This is the cosmic Christ. Christ, the uncreated creator over everything. And what this should do when you start understanding Christ like this, it should blow your mind that Christ took on humanity. 
It should blow your mind that this God would actually drape himself in flesh. This is, the, this is what Paul is going to say in Philippians. He said, this God, creator God, humbled himself to be a man. That should be humbling to us. Like, you have to humble yourself to be a man? Yes. And hum, he humbled himself. This is what he did. But not just that. Not just Christ, the creator God. Next, we see him as the sustainer. Christ holds everything together. Verse 17 says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Paul says that Christ is the divine glue or the spiritual gravity that holds everything seen and unseen together. This flies in the face of deism, a belief that God may have started the world but is just letting the whole world wind down, all hands-off-like. He's hands-off. He created it. He, he sparked it. And then it just took its course. And he's just like, oh, we'll see where this thing goes. Oh, that's not so good. Let me intervene there. And um, that's nasty. Let's do that. And then I'll do. Like, that's not what it says here. God did not withdraw from his creation. Quite the opposite. Even though this world may feel the effects of sin and brokenness, God continues to hold the whole cosmos together. And he holds it all together in Christ. Christ holds everything together. Atoms are held together in Christ. The universe is held together in Christ. The earth weighs about 6 billion trillion tons, is moving around the sun at roughly 66,000 miles an hour, and is doing this while rotating at the equator at a little over 1,000 miles an hour. And who is holding all this together? Gravity. No, not gravity. Gravity is not even necessarily a fixed thing. It changes depending where you are. Some places in the universe have little to no gravity. Some have so much so that light collapses in on itself. No, gravity doesn't hold it all together. Christ holds it all together. Christ holds the atoms together, the universe, gravity, light. All of these things that are in a beautiful dance all around each other, the Scriptures proclaim that it is Christ that's holding everything together. But one of the most beautiful and complex things in the entire universe is you and I, humanity, with a soul, with a body, with a mind, with the capacity to think and to have emotion and to reason and to have will. And what we do, what do we spend most of our times doing in life? What do we spend, being the apex of all creation, what do we spend most of our lives doing? We spend most of our lives trying to hold it all together. We try to hold our, our whole lives together. All of us do this. We're trying to hold it together. We're trying to hold it together with our struggles, with our bills, with our wants, with our travels, with our needs, with our relationships, with our desire, with our like status updates and making sure everything's curated right. We, we try to hold everything together. Where should, should, how long should I stay at this job? Should I transfer to another job? Should I stay in this city? Wh- who am I going to marry? Like, am I married to the right person? I have to be married to the right person. I'm a Christian, so I'm staying with this person. But is this person like... <laughs> Like, we do this all the time. Like, we're trying to hold our whole lives together. All of it. We're trying to balance work and play. We're trying to balance our checkbooks, if that's even a thing anymore. Like, we try to hold it all together. All of us. And we go through life thinking that people don't care like we do about certain things. And we try to control. And we become self-centered. And full of anxiety. We can't hand things off because, will that person care for it like I care for it? Does anyone really care? Does anyone really care like I care about this thing? 
about your startup company, about your project, about your, whatever you're overseeing, whatever you're trying to hold it all together. Listen, if Jesus is the sustainer, he's not just the sustainer of atoms and galaxies. He's the sustainer of your life. And if that is the case, and Christ is the sustainer, then the best thing that you can do is release your life into his hands, to trust him, to go beyond belief into trust. There is a huge difference between belief and trust. Belief is a theory. Belief is like, yeah, I think he could do that. I believe that you can do that. I believe that if, if, if you put me on like a, a spinning wheel of death and you throw knives, you won't hit me. I, I believe that this magician could do that or this, sli- this, this amazing whatever guy can do that. Trust is getting on the wheel. Trust is like, oh, I, don't, I believe you can do that, but just do it with someone else, not me. Like, yeah, my, 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 do this with the person I came with. I want to see it, I want to see it happen to them. Trust is going, I, I don't just believe that you can do that. I trust that you can do that. I don't just believe that you hold the atoms and you hold the world and the universe and everything together, that if we're just a little closer to the sun, we'd burn up and we're a little further away, we'd freeze. I don't just believe that you can hold it together like that. I believe that you can hold my life together and I trust that you can hold my life together, so I submit my life into your hands. I give my hopes over to you and my dreams over to you. There's a great fear in doing that. And the fear is, won't I... Will he choose what's right for me? If I submit my dreams, what if I don't get my dreams? If I submit my hopes, what if I don't get what I hope for? And if I submit to him, will he work everything out? Listen, when we submit our lives, all of us collectively, to him, what he does is he arranges it all, like he does the galaxies, like he does the atoms. He arranges our lives to become this beautiful symphony. He takes all of our lives and he plays them all out. Your, the worst times of your life, the most desperate times of your life, the most painful times of your, of your life. In the midst of a world that's full of chaos, he works them all out so that in the end, everything that Christ created is this beautiful, woven, harmonious, peaceful song. Now, how can you be sure that that's going to happen? How can you be sure that Christ can do this? How can we be sure that Christ will take all of our individual stories, all of our individual songs, all of our individual lives and dreams and hopes and weave them all together? This is how, because he's the redeemer. Christ reconciles everything. He puts everything in its proper place and he will put everything in its proper place. This is what it says, and this is our last point, Christ the redeemer. It says that for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. To reconcile to himself. There's something that is implied here that can actually easily be overlooked. Because Christ reconciles all things to himself, it implies that all things were previously unreconciled. The reason why we try to fight and claw to hold our lives together is because there seems to be irreconcilable differences between you and the universe between you and God. Sometimes you may feel like the whole universe is against you. And in fact, it is. You might feel like the whole world's against you. And in fact, it is. See, the goal is not becoming one with the earth. 
Some people will say, well, the whole thing's against you. Start to get into the rhythm of the earth. Become one with the earth. But the earth is winding down. It too, the world too, the earth too is touched by disharmony. The goal should not be making peace with this world or even peace with yourself. The only hope offered to humanity, to this universe even, is to become one with God, to be at peace with God. And how do we do that? Look what it says. Look what Paul says here. The fullness of God was in Christ. All of God was in Christ, meaning that Christ had all the fullness of God and that God had all the fullness of Christ. Christ was not a part of God. He was God. See, before Christ was born of Mary, this might hurt your brain for a second, but bear with me. Before Christ was born of Mary, he was not the image of God. He was the original. And for our sake, he was made the image of God. Christ always was. Before Christ was Jesus, he was the original. But he was made the image for us so that we can see who God is, that he can win for us our redemption. And Christ makes peace by his blood. And this is not a negotiated peace. He didn't show up with Satan like, okay, what do you want? And what do I want? I want these. Okay, he didn't negotiate peace. He beat sin, death, and the devil. He defeated sin, death, and the devil. He won for us our peace. He took it back as a, as a, as a warrior would for us. And for our sake, Christ the original was made the image to show us God, to reconcile us to God. This is why when Jesus died on the cross, it was not divine child abuse. Some people think that it, it was. Jesus must be, Jesus dying on the cross is divine child abuse. Basically, this is what this view says. It, it, was, it, it, was, it was God punishing his son on our behalf. It was God saying, here's my son, I'm going to beat him up. And, that's, and, and some have called that's divine child abuse. It wasn't simply that. It was, and this is what Colossians says. This is what Philippians says. This is what the New Testament proclaims. It was God himself draping himself in humanity and he himself dying for us. It was the fullness of God in Jesus Christ dying for us. It was God dying for us. What Colossians says in an astonishing but poetic way is that Jesus, the creator God, the head of creation, the head of the church, though he was God, died. He died. God died. Why? To make peace. The scriptures talk about what went wrong with the world. It says that in the beginning there was peace and there was harmony and there was shalom, but humanity vandalized that shalom. And not just way back then, they did it then. We have vandalized the beautiful order that God has placed in creation. We have done it. We are not just victims of wrongdoing, but all of us are perpetrators of it. We all have offended God. We have all cut ourselves off from his fellowship and his blessings. But God, being rich in mercy, but God, who doesn't let the story end like that, draped himself in humanity, and he made peace through his blood. When Paul says through his blood, that denotes the violence that Jesus went through for you and I. And when he says shed on a cross, it shows the cost that he went through for you and I. Listen, religion doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. The right church doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. The right sexual orientation doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. 
The right parents, the right family, the right past doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And Jesus Christ is the Redeemer, the one who reconciles us to God by making peace. And you and I can know that peace. We can know that peace. We can be reconciled to God by trust. You might have believed it. You might have like, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus is my Redeemer, but have you trusted in him? Have you placed all your trust and hope? Have you cast all your lot before Jesus? You're like, no matter what comes, I'm laying my whole life out before you. I trust you. He is the Redeemer. And not just you as an individual. Christ is not just your little personal Savior. This is not a Christ that makes its way into our little heart. I remember hearing a story um, when I was a youth pastor. I read it. It I don't think it was a real story, but it's a good one nonetheless. Where... After the altar call, the pastor calls people up. And if you want to receive Jesus in your heart, come forward. And this little boy turned to his mom and said, if Jesus is that big and he fits in my heart, won't he stick out? Isn't that cute? And the mom's like, more than you know. You can't take this in without it completely changing you completely transforming you. This is not personal little Savior Jesus that we put into our pocket or our heart. Christ is the reconciler of all things. And not just people, but all creation. Every star, every cork, every cell, there is no place in all the universe, no matter how small or how big, that Jesus does not say, I made that, it's mine, and I've died to redeem it. Everything. And there may be intelligent life out there somewhere just to get weird on you. (laughs) And though they might not know Christ as Jesus of Nazareth, they will know him as Lord. For Christ is the cosmic Christ. And what I want to do right now is I want to ask God to move us beyond studying, because I know this was very studious, this is very intellectual or something. I want us to move beyond that, to move beyond studying into adoration. I've been waiting all week to say this. I just want to get cosmic with you <laughs> during worship. <laughs> Worshiping the cosmic Christ. That that's who he is, and if that's who he is, he's, worship, he's worthy of all of our worship, all of our adoration, and it changes everything. It doesn't bring Christ down to our level. He, ex- he lifts us up. He takes us. He, he might have come down in our lowly estate, but he exalts us through redemption and that on the cross. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your sufficient, powerful, amazing word. And Jesus, you are highly exalted. Yes, you did humble yourself to become a man and die for us and clothe yourself in humanity, but before that and even now, you are the exalted Lord. Everything is yours. Everything is yours. I pray that, God, we together would trust in you. To move beyond belief, this theoretical belief that you are who you are, and to trust that we trust in this word. That all of us, Lord, in our own ways have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. But God, we can have peace today. We can know peace today. Peace isn't just a feeling, it's a person. And you are that person, Lord. You are that peace. You bring peace, God. 
God, may we be led and moved to worship you, Christ our Savior, our Redeemer, our Maker. In Jesus' name, amen.